just before he was murdered, <clears throat> the famous designer, Versace, was asked about his religious opinions. <clears throat> he replied, I believe in God, but not the kind of religious person who goes to church, who believes in the fairy tale of Jesus born in the stable with a donkey. That's not. I'm not stupid. I can't believe that God, with all the power that he has, had to have himself born in a stable. It wouldn't have been comfortable, says Versace. By the way, none of us can afford his clothes, so none of you are supporting him, I'm sure. Uh, Versace, as materialistic as his concerns sound, might have a point. Why wasn't Jesus born in a fancy Jerusalem hospital? And why wasn't he given a gold bottle? And why wasn't he born on silk sheets? After all, he is a king. Why not be born in style and royalty as Versace would have been born in? You see, saints to the world, uh, the incarnation of the Son is an outrageous belief. How can God become man? Many claim. To take it a step further, how can God take on a true human nature without ceasing to be truly God? One person, two natures. It doesn't make sense. You see, people want a religion that makes sense. People want to believe in something that makes sense. They want to cross all of their T's and dot all of their I's and no X, Y, and Z. They want a religion that shows a great power, that shows great strength, that doesn't show weakness. One who was a king born where the donkeys lay. That's a sign of weakness to many of the world. That's a, that's folly to many of the world. Powerful gods don't lessen themselves to become weak and mortal, as many would say. But saints, it's ironic that that incomprehensible, inconceivable, mysterious, and some say weak, truth was the greatest event in all of history. That, that one inconceivable, outrageous thought of God becoming man to the Christian is the greatest event in all of history. Some say when Americans walked on the moon, that was the greatest event in all of history. Some say the French Revolution was the greatest event in all of history. Some would even say the Reformation is the greatest event in all of history. And saints, if we were to look back at the history of world-changing, world-stopping events, the one that stands head and shoulders above all of these great events is what the Apostle Paul, John, says in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That so-called fairy tale of Jesus being born in the stable with the donkeys and him being uncomfortable as Versace speaks of was and is the greatest hope for all of mankind. God became man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And saints, this morning, we want to look at a classic passage of scripture that fully puts on display Christ's incarnation and all of its majesty and all of its glory. You see, saints, sometimes when we come to church, we oftentimes think of what practical things, what 10-step uh, ideas the pastor can give to me in order for my marriage to work better, in order for my, my children to behave more, in order for me to be a better person, a better father, husband, better uh, citizen, and all of that. Saints, we are to come every morning 
when we hear of the word and we are to anticipate not what the preacher is going to give in terms of a 10-step program, but you are to hear Christ and him crucified. You want to know your Savior in all of his glory and all of his majesty. So saints, if you would, and if you can stand, turn, for, uh, turn to Philippians chapter 2 and if you will, let's stand for the reading of the God's word. And this will be a two-part sermon. Uh, this evening, we'll be examining verses 1 through 5. But for this morning, we'll be examining verses 6 through 11. So we have in Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to begin in verse 5 all the way down to verse 11. The word of the Lord says, So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. This morning, saints, I have three points that will help guide us through this glorious Christological passage. And, and the three are the deity of Christ the incarnation and humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ. Number one, the deity of Christ. Number two, the incarnation and humiliation of Christ. And number three, the exaltation of Christ. There are many passages in Scripture that set forth the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. One can turn to Isaiah 53, a prophecy of the person and work of the Messiah. One can turn to John 17, where we have that intimate prayer between the Father and the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. And one can turn to our passage this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, where the Apostle Paul sets forth to his readers the glory and the majesty of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, saints, in this passage, we have the person and work of Christ summed up in just five verses. We have the deity of Christ put on display. We have the incarnation and humiliation of Christ put on display. And we have the exaltation of Christ put on display. These five verses have been used by theologians throughout the centuries to dash to pieces, heresy upon heresy and error upon error, those who reject the true deity and the true humanity of our Savior. For those who reject the true, the true deity of Christ and say that he is not truly God, then read to them Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. For those who come to you and say that Jesus Christ wasn't truly man, then read to them Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. It is a passage that we are to be familiar with for not only getting a proper theology of Christ correct, but also getting a proper theology of how we are to live as Christians correct. So let's open these five verses with verse 6, in which we see the deity of Christ put on display, which is our first point, the deity of Christ. Verse, uh, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice the apostle, a clear affirmation of the deity of Christ. Again, he says, though he was in the form of God. And when Paul says form of God, he's not saying that Christ is a copy of God. Uh, we tend to think uh, that when we say uh, 
uh, Jesus is a copy or Jesus is in the form of God, then he is like the Father. And we aren't to use those terms when we are speaking of the deity of Christ. And we use those terms frequently when we say, uh, and those of you who are sports fans, uh, Kobe Bryant is like Michael Jordan. Or when we say uh, Aaron Judge is like Mickey Mantle. You know, there are things that are similar between those two, but there are also significant differences between the two. And what we are saying and what the Apostle Paul here is saying is Christ is not like the Father in his deity, but Jesus Christ is fully and truly God. This text in the original language should should read, we are to eliminate the word form and replace it with the word nature or essence. So Christ existed in the nature or essence of God. In other words, Christ exists as God. Christ is God. Christ is not one God among many in a pantheon of deities. Uh, Jesus Christ is not a God. He's never to, we are never to refer to Christ as a God amongst many gods, but rather Jesus Christ is God. Nor does Christ derive his essence from the Father, meaning that the Father didn't create the Son, thereby giving the Son deity. We must also reject the Mormon teaching that Jesus was once a man and who by good works elevated himself to divinity. Jesus never had to do any, or I should say the son never had to do any good works in order for him to become, or in order for him to be God. Uh, he was not uh, the offspring, uh, the physical offspring of the father, thereby him being God. Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is the eternal son. All of what it means to be God, Jesus Christ in his divine nature possesses. He is simple without parts. He is immutable without change. He is impassable, uh, doesn't undergo change in his perfections. He is all say self-sufficient. He doesn't depend on no one. And we can go on down the list and name all the perfections of God and affirm the same as the apostle Paul in verse six, Jesus Christ is God. Everything of what it means to be God must be predicated to Jesus Christ. Our confession of faith in chapter eight, paragraph two, defines the deity of Christ this way is the son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity being very and eternal God, the brightness of the father's glory of one substance and equal with him who made the world who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made. And when our confession of faith says the son is of same substance or equal with the father, they're saying that the son is God just as the father is God. Now, just as you share your humanity with all of us, you know, mothers share their humanity, that one essence with their children, all of what it means to be human, uh, a mother, a father, a child shares. Well, all of what it means to be God, the son shares with the father and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is truly God. And friends, we aren't to think that this uh, truth of Jesus Christ is God is something that we know, that we confess, and that we forget about. We are always to be reminded of the truth of Jesus Christ as God as often as we can. We must always amen. We must always uh, shake our head and marvel at Jesus Christ, who is truly God. Although it is the ABCs of Christianity, it is not the, the end of, of our learning of Jesus Christ and who he is. Remember, saints, although we aren't saved by theological precision, yet the saved are to be theologically precise. We're not saved with by knowing all the ins and outs of the Trinity, of the hypostatic union, of all of Christology and eschatology. We aren't saved by our knowledge. However, the saved are to be knowledgeable. The saved are to know who Jesus Christ is, truly God. We aren't to, uh, we might get every area of our theology uh, inaccurate, saints. And we are to know that that doesn't save us. However, Christians who are of the faith, who strive to, to know Christ, should know him accurately and rightly to confess him. 
And we as Christians who confess Christ are to be accurate in our statements we make about him. There are so many false views of who Christ is. Uh, There are so many uh, different opinions on who Christ is. You know, we can have even in amongst the church, uh, there are debates over should we baptize babies or should we baptize only professing Christians? Uh, uh, What do we think about the end times? Uh, Are we post mill, ob mill or pre mill? And we can go down the list of different things that people in the church hold to and the differing opinions. But saints, we must not budge on this point. We must not budge on this point. Jesus Christ is truly God. We are to think that the truth of the deity of Christ is something that we know. And once we know, we graduate from. We never graduate from uh, Christ and who he is. The early church saints fought hard against those heretics who tried to disprove the clear biblical witness of the deity of Christ. Go read Anselm. Go read Athanasius. Go read these men uh, in the early church who fought hard to confess that Jesus Christ is God. He is not like the Father, but he is God. And mind you, saints, we are still fighting those same heretics today. The fight over the deity of Christ has not uh, changed. It, it, the war is not over. We are still fighting against atheists who deny the deity of Christ, against uh, agnostics and skeptics, against Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Buddhists and Hindus. We are fighting against all of these different cults who try to disprove the deity of Christ. We must know who our Christ is. And the first knowledge of what we know about Christ is he is truly God. All of what it means to be God, Jesus Christ is. We must also daily be reminded and affirm the deity of Christ for this is the foundation of the Christian faith. This is the very foundation of our faith, saints. Jesus said in John 8, uh, 28 or 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins, Jesus says, if you do not believe that Jesus is the great I am. If you do not believe that Jesus is truly God, you will die in your sins. You will rot in in eternal damnation. It is important for us saints, us being as Christians to affirm who Christ is, the deity of Christ, but also we are to be able to defend it. We are to be able to defend the deity of Christ against those who try to disprove our Christ. They're speaking of our Christ. They're speaking of the one who saved us and saying that he is not truly God. We must bring to them Philippians chapter uh, 2, verses 6 through 11, and dash to pieces with this, with this, uh, with this sword, all of their errors, all of their heresies. So that is the first point, saints, that we must consider that Jesus Christ is God. And that is the, and that is the, the, um, the truth that the apostle Paul is putting forth to these Philippian Christians who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus Christ is God. Let's now look at our second point, which is the incarnation and humiliation of Christ. Uh, The incarnation and humiliation of Christ. We first looked at the deity of Christ. Now the incarnation and humiliation of Christ. Again, look with me at verse 6. In verses 7 and 8, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What three glorious verses we just read. What three glorious verses the Apostle Paul sets forth to these Philippian Christians. The Apostle Paul, in just three verses, gives us a theological discourse on the incarnation and humiliation of Christ. In just three verses. He sets forth the glories of Christ in his incarnation and humiliation. He says in verse 6, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
Again, we've already noted that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, that he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. But the Apostle Paul says the Son didn't hold on to his divinity, as if he was too good to become human, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to his divinity, saints. He didn't say, I'm too good to become human. Father, you become human. No spirit, you become human. He willingly, voluntarily, and humbly became flesh. And that's the language of verse 6, saints. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that word grasped in the original language means means plunder. It means a prize or anything to be seized or greatly desired. It is used here to speak of the attitude of the Son toward the perfect will and redemptive plan of God the Father. You see, saints, the eternal Son didn't cling to his divinity. He didn't cling to his divinity. Rather, willingly and voluntarily became what he was not. The Son assumed what he was not, a true human nature. God became man. And this, saints, is known as the incarnation. And when you hear that word incarnation, that simply means to take on flesh. Uh, The incarnate son, he took on flesh. He became truly human. For those who were here last Sunday evening, uh, you might remember part of the work that the son was given from the father in eternity past was that the son was to take on flesh. The son was to become human. He was to become what he was not. He was to become like his creation. The son assumed a full and complete human nature without sin. All of what it means to be human, all of the common infirmities that constitute our humanity, Christ in his human nature possessed, yet without sin. He got tired. He got hungry. He was tempted The son became a true human, yet without sin. I read this quote once, but it's one of my favorite quotes on the incarnation. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin has said, When the son became flesh, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. We are to read the Puritan saints. In the incarnation, heaven kissed earth. God and man met in one person, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh, saints, and he dwelt among us. This is glorious truth. This is truth that we should be reminded of every single day and every single Sunday. That God became man. The one who formed the first man, Adam, from the dust of the ground, takes on human flesh and walks along the dust of Jerusalem. The one who is the giver of the law becomes subjected to the law. Saints, verse 6 is worthy of deep meditation and worship to God. This is the truth that makes the incarnation, God becoming man, so glorious. It makes our salvation in Christ that much weightier. Though he was in the form of God, though he was God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What love is that, saints? What condescension is that? Though he was in the form of God, he did not hold on to his divinity, saints. But he willingly became flesh for our sakes. The one who had every reason to put his own rights first. He had every reason to put his own priorities, his own rights, his own prerogatives first. He did not. He willingly became flesh. He did not view his divine glory as something that he must hold on to at all costs, but rather the sun veiled his glory and he became flesh. We move on and we see the great apostle advancing the doctrine of the incarnation. In verse 7 it reads, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When we read saints in verse 7, but emptied himself, We aren't to think that the Son, in His incarnation, ceased to be God. That is a head-scratcher. But in the incarnation, when when God took on human flesh, 
We aren't to think that God set aside his divinity in order for him to become human. God did not cease to be God. Mather, mind you, God cannot cease to be God. God cannot stop being God. When we read the emptying himself, uh, we are to think that, and this simply means, the son assumes a human nature. That's all of what it means. The emptying himself is the son taking on a true and complete human nature without ceasing to be true and complete God. John Owen says at this point, it is not said that he ceased to be in the form of God. We weren't to think that Jesus Christ or the eternal son stopped being God, but continuing so to be. He took upon the form of a servant in our nature. He became what he was not, but he ceased not to be what he was. This is an important Christological truth and distinction that Jesus Christ in the incarnation didn't stop being God. The son, while containing all of his divine perfections, took to himself a true human nature. He became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. Friends, you might say at this point, uh, this is a head scratcher. This is confusing. Uh, This is deep. This is rich. Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man. How is that possible? How can God become man, uh, take on a a, a true human nature uh, without ceasing to be truly God? One God in two person or one God and one person in two natures. How is all this possible? This doesn't make sense. And saints, we confess, and those minds who are much smarter than I throughout the Christian faith have confessed that this is a mystery, that the incarnation of the eternal Son is a deep and profound mystery. And saints, when we speak of the incarnation, when we speak of the Trinity, when we speak of the hypostatic union, we are to have a holy agnosticism. Although we cannot fully comprehend all that we are uh, saying, all that we believe, we must shut our mouths and worship and admire that one. Although we uh, approach mystery uh, as, as one who wants to know everything, we want to know everything, and we get frustrated when we don't know everything, when we come to the mystery of the incarnation, but we aren't to be, uh, we aren't to say and throw up our hands and say, I'm never going to know this, so what's the use? This is to drive us to doxology. This is to drive us to worship our Christ. This is to drive us to be more precise. As Stephen Charnock has once said, although we can't comprehend God for who he is, we must not fancy him to be what he is not. We must not fancy God to be what he is not, but we must confess who he is in light of mystery. As uh, Herman Bovink once said, mystery saints is the lifeblood of all dogmatics. We begin with mystery. We begin with the incomprehensible one. And then we keep uh, confessing that incomprehensible one, the one who is deeply profound, yet ever so glorious. Let's move on, saints. Uh, Notice the status in which the Son became incarnate. Again, verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ who by nature and status was God, made himself nothing when he became human. Notice the status. He became a servant. The king became a servant. The old boys would say, the master became a slave. Jesus Christ, the king of kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the great I am, becomes a servant? That doesn't make any sense. Christ, who by nature was never a servant, becomes a servant. In the incarnation, the son, the son wasn't born into a family of wealth and riches. You would have been born into a family of wealth and riches. You would have been uh, born in a, a fancy uh, Jerusalem hospital with and wrapped in and silk uh, blankets and, and and given a gold pacifier and bottle. You would have done that, but he came in the form of a servant. Though he was the king, 
the son wasn't born into an earthly royal family. He didn't take on the form of an heir to an earthly throne. He wasn't next in line. Rather, he took the form of a slave, of a servant. Christ says in Matthew 20, 28, even as the son of man came to be served, came to be served, uh, but to serve, it came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The son of God did not come to be served, but he came to serve. He came to serve. This one who possessed all of the heavenly riches in and of himself, all at his disposal, lived his life as a servant. I'm trying to impress this more into your mind so you, you understand the weightiness of this. The king became what he was not. He took the form of a servant. He took the form of one who men hid their faces from. There was, there was no beauty that men would look upon him and, and gaze their eyes and look at him and say, that's the king of the Jews. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as Isaiah 53 tells us. In Luke 9, one asked Christ, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have the nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. What state of lowliness did he become? He came in the form of a servant. He became low saints, much lower than we would have went. Far much lower than we would have went. What humility, saints, and what glorious condescension by our Lord. John Gill has rightly said at this point, put these two together, the form of God and the form of the servant, and admire the amazing stoop. Put these two together, the form of God and the form of a servant, and admire the amazing stoop. Saints, we are to read, or when we read such glorious verses, we are to take pause and meditate on our Christ. There are some times when uh, you read a passage in Scripture uh, that deserves you to well up in tears. That deserves for you to burst out in hymn singing. That warrants you to pray to your God for what he has done. This, saints, is one of those verses. The one who Isaiah 6 describes as highly seated, uh, seated and the one who's sitting on a throne that's high and lifted up, whose, whose, uh, whose helm of the train fills the temple, who the seraphim fly all around the throne and sing, holy, 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 and with six wings, with two they cover their eyes because Christ is so holy, the eternal son is so holy. With two they cover their feet because they acknowledge that he is holy. And with two they fly. This great king who sits high on a throne, that one became a servant. What an amazing condescension. Stephen Charnock so eloquently put it, what a wonder that two natures, infinitely distant, God and man, should be more intimately united than anything in the world. That the same person should have both a glory and a grief. An infinite joy in the deity and an inexpressible sorrow in the humanity. That a God upon a throne should be, in an, should be an infant in a cradle. The thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. The incarnation astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. This is the incarnation, saints. You see, saints, we are to be familiar with the incarnation. We are to know the incarnation. We are to be precise when we speak of the incarnation. But we should never stop being in awe and wonder of the incarnation. Never graduate. Never stop being in awe of this one who stooped to our lowly estate to live, die, and rise for us. The sun comes down from heaven and touches our human infirmities. Verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Saints, I don't know if you've noticed this. I don't know if you notice what the Apostle Paul is doing, but if you see in verse 6, we began uh, this discourse of, of Christology, and he begins uh, with Christ so high in the heavens. This one who is in the form of God, who is truly God. He begins us high. And then by verse 8, look how low we have stooped. He humbled himself to the point of death. This king that we have been familiar with in verse 6 is now humbled himself in verse 8 to the point of death. Here the apostle Paul takes us deeper into the mystery of the incarnation. And here he highlights the humiliation of Christ. And what do we mean when we speak of the incarnation? Well, question 27 of the Shorter Catechism, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, defines it this way. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Meaning, what is the, incarn- what is the humiliation? Christ's humiliation consists in his being born, in that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death on the cross in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. In summary, the humiliation of Christ is his life on earth. That's the humiliation of Christ. It's the incarnation all the way down to his death. The the humiliation of Christ is the son becoming flesh. It is him being placed under the law. It's him suffering. It's him living as a man. That's the humiliation of Christ. But notice the attitude in which Christ had during his life. Although it was humiliation for Christ, notice the, the, the attitude that Christ had. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Our Lord, although he lived a life of suffering, also lived a life of meekness. He lived a life of humility. He humbled himself, saints. The Lord wasn't, or the Son wasn't forced to become flesh. Uh, the Father didn't, uh, hypothetically, I'm using this as the worst analogy possible, and I'm just going to say it here and be done with it, but this, the Father didn't put a gun to the Son's head and say, if you don't become flesh, then, then something bad's going to happen to you. That's not what happened in eternity past. The Son willingly, voluntarily, and humbly became flesh. The incarnate son in his lifetime humbled himself to the father's will. We read in the gospels time and time again, Christ saying, I did not come to do my own will. I've come to do the will of the one who sent me throughout his life. The son humbly did all that he was commanded by his father. He humbled himself. He lived a life of meekness, although he lived a life of suffering and saints, even in his last hours of life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what do we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 42? Christ, after sweating drops of blood, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, that cup being the wrath of God that should have been poured out for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not my will. Yours be done. In his last hours, knowing what he was going to face on the cross. He says, but not my will. Father, your will be done. Obedient to the point of death. Humble and meek and to the point of death. He could have called a legion of angels to save him. All of heaven at one snap of Christ's finger would have saved him but he became obedient and humbled himself to the Father's will. His his face remained a flint in order to save us from our sins. Christ was obedient to God even to the point of death. He remained in a state of humility to his God. Christ also, saints, lived a life of humility toward man. It's not just he lived a life of humility toward the Father, But he lived a life of humility toward man, sinful man. He obeyed his parents. He worked humbly as a carpenter. He conversed 
with sinners. He washed his disciples' feet. Christ didn't boast in his divine origins. He never once boasted in his miracles. Our Savior lived a life of meekness and humility. And that humility of our Christ climaxed in his death on the cross, which was the ultimate sign of humility. Christ's death on the cross was the ultimate sign of his meekness, obedience, and humility. I mean, let's think about the death of Christ for a second. His death wasn't a private death. Christ didn't die in secret. His his beatings weren't done in secret in a private room. It was done before the masses. He carried that cross of Golgotha's hill in front of all of the world to see. It was done in public. His death was made a spectacle. It was made an event. Jesus Christ's death was a humiliating death. Beaten, spit on, mocked, made fun of. A crown of thorns impressed upon the temple of Christ. And a sign that said the king of the Jews was placed upon his cross. But our Lord never complained. Our Lord never complained. He never said, this is too much. Aborted mission and turn back. Even to the point of death, saints, he remained humble. He stayed the course. He finished the race. Saints, there's not much application I can give. There, I can't give a 10-step or 10 idea, or or 10 reasons, or any of those things. The only thing I can say is, what a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. What a wonder Savior we have in Jesus Christ. And because of our Lord's obedience and life of humility, the Apostle Paul in verse 9 through 11 sets forth the exaltation of Christ, which is our last point. The exaltation of Christ Verses 9 through 11 reads, Therefore Christ has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Glory be to our King. This saint is called the exaltation of Christ. And it's a fitting ending to our Lord's life. One who lived a life of meekness and humility. Christ, the God-man, exalted because of his great work of redemption. What do we mean when we speak of the exaltation of Christ's saints? Well, it doesn't mean that Christ achieved an exalted state that he lacked prior to the incarnation. We aren't to think that. Uh, for as God, he has always been the exalted one. And even when we say, Christ, I exalt you, and we sing hymns and songs of, I exalt thee, we are not in and of ourselves exalting Christ, for he is already exalted. But what we mean is, we are amening. We are saying yes to the exaltation that Christ already has in and of himself. So when we say the exaltation of Christ, we are not saying that Christ was exalted to something, to a place that he wasn't already been exalted before. But with respect to his human nature, Christ is exalted. Christ in his divinity was already exalted. But now Christ in his human nature is exalted. Christ, the God-man, forever in heaven, who is flesh, is exalted who is seated at the right hand of the Father. This one, given the glory that he shared with the Father in eternity past. The Puritan Thomas Watson puts it this way, not in respect with his, uh, of his Godhead. For that cannot be exalted higher than what he is, meaning Christ, with respect to his divinity, was not exalted for, how can you exalt God to a much a higher state? It doesn't make any sense. As in his humiliation, the Godhead wasn't lower. His divinity wasn't lower. His deity wasn't lower. So in his exaltation, the Godhead is not higher. But Christ is exalted as mediator. His heaven nature or his human nature is exalted. Because of the perfect work of our Savior, Jesus Christ has been given saints. He's exalted. And he's been given a name that is above every name. 
a name that people used to call and they would say, hey, Jesus, how you doing? Is now the name that people call upon. Is now the name that is above every name. A name that is to be called upon saints. A name that we are to believe in. A name that makes demons shudder and evil men tremble. A name that all in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow one day and confess that he is Lord. Christ, who in life, in his life, humbled himself to lowliness. But he was raised from the dead and exalted to glory. He was exalted over death. And, and he was exalted in the resurrection. And in his, in, in his exaltation, Christ was exalted over the heavens and the earth. Christ is our king, saints. He is our sovereign. Kings may die. Uh, rulers may fail. Christ remains on the throne. Christ remains on the throne. He is exalted. He is the one who sits enthroned in heaven while his enemies are made a footstool. The cross wasn't the end of our Lord's life, saints, but was the means of Christ's exaltation to glory. You see, after the cross, there would be a throne. And after those crown of thorns, there would be a crown. Jesus Christ went through a state of humiliation, a state of lowliness, only to be raised to a state of glory, to be exalted forever. And every man, every woman will one day bow their knee to this great king. Saints, what a savior we have. What a king we have. Our Christ, saints, is worthy of all honor and praise. He is worthy of law-keeping. He is worthy of us coming to church with smiles on our faces, with expectations, knowing that we are going to hear Christ in him crucified, Christ in him exalted, Christ in him glorified. He is worthy of all of those things. He is worthy, if you profess Christ, for you to act like a Christian. He is worthy of those things. And saints, as we close this sermon, what practical implications can we draw from this text? In other words, how do we live in light of these five verses? Well, saints, first and only what we are to do is we are to worship our Christ. We are to worship our Christ, for he is the one who condescended to our lowly state. We are to remember the word of the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. A glorious verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He became poor, saints. The eternal one, the eternal son, became poor. So us sinful creatures who rebelled against him, who hate him, who spit on him, can be made rich. He took on our flesh in order that we may be glorified. He takes us to a state that Adam could never take us to. He takes us to that eternal rest, that eternal glory. Praise God. Praise our King. He stooped down to our level, saints. The Lord of glory veiled his glory, and he became what he was not. We are to worship our Christ for what he did for us. We could never do for ourselves. We could never do for ourselves. The eternal son took on flesh like ours, but with one difference. He became everything that we are, but with one difference. This one that became flesh, this one who was truly human, was far beyond the reach of the effects of the fall. This one, Jesus Christ, sin could not touch. This one, Jesus Christ, was not under the curse of Adam. This one, Jesus Christ, sin could not cling to. And in his life, he humbly suffered on the behalf of his people, saints. He willingly obeyed the law faithfully and fully on the behalf of his people, saints. And on the cross, Christ voluntarily suffers the wrath of God for his people, saints. And our Lord humbled himself to the point of death 
But saints, the amazing news of the gospel is not just the life of Christ and what he has done for us. It's not just the death of Christ, but it's the resurrection of Christ. That's the amazing news of the gospel. That this one who died, death could not hold. Death could not hold. Death could not hold our king. For in three days, God raises Jesus from the grave, showing his people that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And they, on the account of Christ, you, saint, on the account of Christ, in him alone, not in your own works, not in what you can do, not perfect law keeping, not perfect Bible reading, not perfect prayers, but in Christ and his perfect work alone are declared innocent and justified on the account of Christ and him alone. And now, saints, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession on our behalf, as if it wasn't enough. He now sits in heaven, and his presence alone is making intercession on our behalf. Praise God. We are to worship our Christ, who from the highest of heaven stooped down to the lowliness of earth. You see, saints, We aren't to look at these five verses and as a response, which we tend to do, and as a response, create a list of the things we can do for Christ. Oh, he he became incarnate. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. Now, what can I do? Give me something. What can I do? Saints, we are to never look at what we can do for Christ. And in light of these five verses... We are to take pause and marvel at the great things Christ did for us. Never look at what you can do for Christ first, saints. But first, marvel at what Christ has done for you. And saints, that's the only application I can leave you with. Behold your great God, your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.